Welcome to the Sports Innovation Podcast, presented by the IUPUI Sports Innovation Institute, located right here in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Sherman, a full-time faculty member within the Sport Management Program here at IUPUI and a professional sports statistician here in Indianapolis. The Sports Innovation Podcast is designed to highlight innovative practitioners and scholars throughout sport and education to learn new and thought-provoking ways to improve our industry together. Thank you for listening to the Sports Innovation Podcast. Welcome to the Sports Innovation Podcast, presented by the IUPUI Sports Innovation Institute. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Sherman, and joining me here today, here today is Dr. Jamie Johnson, a professor of sport administration in the School of Kinesiology at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, and our director, Dr. David Pierce, a professor of sport management in the School of Health and Human Sciences at IUPUI. Today, these gentlemen are joining me to talk about high school athletics and their research into one of the more innovative approaches to success in the nation right here in the state of Indiana. Gentlemen, how are you guys today? Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having us. Doing well. Thanks, Jeff. Well, I'm glad to hear all of that. Uh, I'm enjoying the weather right now, to be completely honest with you. It feels like I'm on the beach. I feel like I'm back in Maui, right, with the wind and and the trees moving and the cool weather. It's kind of nice. I don't know. I don't know. Race day. Getting there. It's going to be hot by then, though. It always is every year, right? Okay. So, Dr. Johnson, first, tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and on what subjects your research tends to be focused. Uh, sure. Yeah. I'm a uh, professor of sport administration at Ball State University. Um, I grew up in Indiana. I grew up in Hagerstown, Indiana, and and did my undergrad work where I played baseball at Franklin College. Then I, I moved to, to Ball State and eventually got a master's in sports psychology and, and higher education and focused on sports studies. And through a number of different uh, paths, I've I've ended up being um, a professor here in our program, and, and I ran our master's program for about 11 years. And I tend to do research in um, two main areas, and that would be high school sports and college sports. Um, I, I tend to, to go back and forth, but um, my, my passion with research really tends to be what we're going to be talking about today, which is um, some interscholastic sports and um, all the little paths that we travel when we think about you know policy and, and fairness and competitive balance and um, so that tends to be sort of my my wheelhouse, my baby, so to speak. Um, I do I, I do do a lot in college sport as well. Um, I, I look at academic trends in college sport and leadership changes, coaching changes, coaching behaviors. Um, so so those are the two areas that, that I mostly dabble in. Well, it sounds good. It sounds like a a, a, a a academic side. You like the the tie to the school and the student athlete perspective, not just the athlete perspective, right? From your research background. Now, Dr. Pierce, give us a little bit about who you are and what your research focus has been over the years. Yeah, so done a lot of different uh, things. Currently the director, obviously, of the Sports Innovation Institute, kind of started off in the sales and marketing uh, area, moved more into human-centered design, innovation, creativity, entrepreneurship, but um, I've uh, worked over the past 10 years since our uh, time when I worked with Jamie at Ball State early in my career on this uh, high school athletics competitive balance and policy approach. So uh, Jamie has uh, certainly, you know, led more of that research and published more in it. Um, but when I heard, when he told me he was doing this deep dive into 10 years worth of data in the state of Indiana on the tournament success factor, I, I knew that was a project I wanted to prioritize in the slate. Yeah, it sounds like something that we should be jumping into, right? And and trying to trying to get uh, some some data behind what IHSAA changes should be made or could be made, right? So, yeah, as I, yep, go ahead. Yeah, and I think that's a passion Jamie and I have is just uh, we know we don't necessarily have a dog in the fight. We don't have a school we're representing. Um, we just think that you know data and you know data analytics can be used to help inform policymaking. So as opposed to kind of anecdotal or ad hoc approaches. Um, you know, these are things that can be studied and numbers can be put behind them. And we want those numbers in front of decision makers when they go to vote for policy change. So as you just mentioned, you just mentioned undertaking a 10 year focus on the tournament success factor, which was published in the Sports Innovation Journal, I might add. It's received some media attention in recent days here in Indianapolis. Um, 
with Kyle Nedenrip from the Indianapolis Star writing a, a pretty good, pretty lengthy piece about it. Now, Jamie, if you don't mind me calling you Jamie, um, shed some light on this. Well, you know, give us some insight into what the tournament success factor really is. And what was it about that subject that attracted you to dig deeper in it, into it, even years ago? Yeah, this is, this could be a really long answer. So I'll try to trim it down as much as I can, but the tournament success factor is an innovative policy. Um, and, and if you back up to look at, if you take the 30,000 foot view of the country, every state has an association and that association controls what happens in postseason playoffs. So state tournament runs. So every, every state has, um, in all their sports, they have a, a postseason competition where everyone goes to win a state championship. I assume anyone familiar with high school sports would, would know that. Um, but it's an important place to start because what happens is every state then has a way that they try to ensure competitive balance. And the first way that they do that is through normally through enrollment classifications. So we call them classes. So in Indiana, you know, the smallest class is 1A and the largest class is 6A for football and 4A for most of the other sports. And so the tournament success factor, um, which was created in 2012 and worked on before that, is really an innovative policy that targets success. And the idea being that there are just some teams at some places that are having a lot more success than you would anticipate they would have from a representative standpoint. And so the tournament success factor identifies those teams that are having too much success and then based on a, a point system can move them up in classification so that the next two-year cycle, it's on a two-year cycle, that they would play in a higher classification. And the point system, um, it's straightforward. If you win a sectional, it's one point, a regional is two, a semi-state is three, and a state title is four. And so if you get six or more points in a two-year cycle, then your team moves up. It's not school, it's team. So you could have a 2A high school that has all their teams in 2A, but had a really successful two-year run in the sport of whatever, and that specific sport then could be in 3A when the rest of them are at 2A. So the tournament success factor then, it, it takes those teams that are successful in a two-year period and it moves them up, and then they, they watch those teams. Those teams compete at a higher level for the next two years, and there's a, a point total of um, – whether they stay moved up or they move down or whether they move up again. So six or more points, they would move up again, um, less than two points, they would move down. And then anything in between, they would stay there. So it's a really innovative policy because it, there aren't a lot of States doing that. Um, most of the States, and this goes, this goes back into um, some of the things that I'm sure we'll get to in some public and private things, but most States, uh, start with classifications. So enrollment's the, the, the number one thing they do, but they have a variety of other competitive balance policies. And many of those policies revolve around the disproportionate success of uh, private schools. Now, private schools in every state are different. The number of private schools, the way they're, they're organized, they, they operate differently in every state. In the state of Indiana, you've got about 15% private schools, 85% public schools at any given time. That that fluctuates a little bit as, as schools kind of come in and out. Um, and so what we found in our early study in 2014, which was a couple years after the, the tournament success factor had started, was that private schools were winning a disproportionate amount of time. So, you know, 15% representation in the state. And I believe it was, I think somewhere around 40 or 50% of state championships they were winning. Um, I'd have to go back and look at the numbers at that point, but it was a, a much higher percentage than, than you would uh, anticipate. And so that really wasn't that big of a surprise because, um, and this maybe gets back to the front end of your question a little bit more, um, how did I become interested in in studying this and the public and private uh, component of it? And so this would go all the way back to my high school days competing at Hagerstown High School, which if you don't know, it's in East Central, excuse me, East Central Indiana. 
it's a small uh, one to two a high school, depending on the years that that they're classified. And like many high schools in Indiana that are public, um, you know, you would you would have years of, of success and years where you're not so successful. You know, you have some athletes come through that are that are pretty good athletes and then maybe you don't have as much. And and so you would see kind of, you know, ebbs and flows of success and Inevitably, if you put together a good team at a public high school, particularly a mid to small public high school, you know, you may get lucky and and win your conference and then maybe win your sectional, maybe even win your regional. And eventually you're probably going to run into a private school team from Indianapolis or Fort Wayne or some other some other um metro area not always i mean not always it's not as if private schools are always but but you're probably going to eventually run into one of those those teams and you're and in in our situation and in many rural school situations you get beat and it causes you know parents and and students to look around and go oh that's not fair you know private schools recruit or private schools have unfair advantages and and i'm certainly not you know as an academic i'm certainly not saying that um private schools recruit there are specific rules against those sort of things but that's the narrative and you hear the narrative over and over and over again and you know i'll get back with my high school friends and and people that i know from the community and you know sports inevitably come up and we start talking about private schools and you know that narrative starts to come up um private schools it's unfair they have unfair advantages they recruit and so you know as i went on as an academic as a professional and I was contemplating some of the things I was interested in studying. That was one of them. And so when the tournament success factor came to be and you started to see private schools moving up in classifications more than, than public schools, it all sort of translated back to my interest and my experiences in high school. Um, now, this is not me going after private schools. This is not a public school kid going, oh, private schools are, are, are bad. Um, I just wanted to, to look at the data and see what was going on so that I could have an informed discussion. You know, when I go back and I see my buddies from high school and we have this conversation, I can say, well, here's here's what the data will tell us, um, which is kind of a fun conversation in itself. Uh, so so my interest, um, that was a long way to get to the point of my interest came from my own personal experiences and sort of dabbling in um, some of the numbers and eventually doing a study in 2014 on the tournament success factor. And then now following up with 10 years of data, I thought it was a nice round number at 10 years to say, okay, let's go back and look, are we still seeing this disproportionate success from private schools? Are we still uh, um, seeing that they move up at a, a specific rate? You know, who's moving up, why are they moving up? But really that was a secondary focus of, of this study. Uh, we really, um, Dr. Pierce and I really wanted to just examine the, the biggest criticism um, which I, I know you you may want to ask about. So I'll leave it there and let you go where you, where you want to go after that. I was wondering to myself here a moment ago, is he going to answer every question that I have asked in this one <laughs> statement? Sorry. <laughs> no, it's I get, perfect. I get rolling and, I get rolling and, and it all kind of sticks together. So. Well, the best part about this, Jamie, is that I can sense your passion. You know, I, I, I can I, like, I can feel in the, in the explanation that you gave that this is something you – you're really into, and and I, and I like that. I, I more than anything, I don't get people that I talk to that are passionate about what they're discussing, you know. And and I and I like that when it does happen, right? So let's get into this, right? Before I ask my other questions that have you know directions to them, this one though is simple. So according to the Star article and what I've read via you know previous edits of the of the of the research. You studied 107 teams that moved up a class since the tournament success factor was implemented. 93 of them had completed the two-year classification cycle being the primary focus. Those 93 are the primary focus. So break that down a little bit. And, and, and Dr. Pierce, if you want to jump in here at all, go ahead. But if you can break that down a little bit so that uh, obviously the our Star article had some breakdown in it. But give me you know some more of what... What is, I guess, not just the breakdown of it, but what does it mean? Before we go into the numbers, I think it's important to uh, discuss kind of the title of, of the, the article and what it means. And so the, the title of, of the publication in the Sport Innovation Journal is, Are We Punishing Success and Evaluation of the Indiana Tournament Success Factor and Implications for Interscholastic Policy? 
And the concept of punishing success really was what this is about. And so if you read the anecdotal information or the, or the, you know, the media um, releases the, the information that's out there about the tournament success factor, one of the biggest criticisms is that it punishes success. And what that means is, so if you know that the tournament success factor is a two year cycle and you know that teams that are most successful, typically teams that are winning semi-states or state titles and getting those six points, if you know they're moving up, well, you got to think about how that works and then what happens after that two-year cycle. So you essentially have um, at many places, not all places, but at many places you have um, a place like where I grew up, you may have a wave, maybe a couple good classes or maybe one good class or maybe an exceptional athlete, maybe a division one type athlete that comes through the program, provides a team with a tremendous amount of success. Maybe they go win a semi-state or a state or, or what have you. They get their six points. They move up in classification. Well, if you're not at an, a school where every year you have exceptional athletes, what happens is those teams that move up now those good athletes have now graduated and the athletes that are coming behind them, which may be decent athletes, average athlete, but, but maybe not exceptional athletes. They are now forced to play up for two years in a higher classification. And they may not have the talent that they had that moved them up for two years. And so the idea is those students that follow a successful class or, or two classes of, of athletes are being punished for the success of their predecessors. And so that was sort of the anecdotal criticism of the tournament success factor. And, and based on what we had seen before with the public and private information, with some other, some other data that we had, I'm like, let's just go look at this. Let's see if that's really what's happening. Um, and so that's really what, where we started. And so um Dr. Pierce, you want to jump in on on, on some of the numbers and, and what we found? Yeah, so I, mean, I think just to cut to the um, main result, I think in terms of like the are we punishing success question, ultimately um, what we found in the 70 schools that had had an opportunity to go through um, two cycles after their promotion, what we found was that six in 10 schools after they were promoted into the new class, they moved back down to their original class and then they stayed back down in the next cycle. All right. So those would really be the schools that you would, one could make the argument are being punished for the success. That's that scenario that uh, Jamie just laid out there. So um, again, six out of 10. So 60% of our data were people that are schools that went up or teams that went up and then did not perform at that next level well enough to stay up, move back down, and then stayed back down. Now, there's also, you know, the other 40% of the schools, they were ones that um, did well enough to stay at that new classification ranking, or maybe even, you know, moved up again because they won another set of championships or earned enough, you know, six or more uh, points. So um, really then our question then is, okay, if you so the, the the you know the TSF is an innovative um, uh, policy you know it's trying to provide competitive balance and competitive equity, um, but the way we thought of it as an analogy is like right now it's a very blunt instrument right it is there's this little two year window and then there's going to be this major change um, that happens so we thought okay sixty percent that's a pretty high percentage that one could argue is being punished for their success. So is there a way, are there um, modifications that could be made to the TSF um, policy so that it would be more of a like surgical instrument? So instead of like a big blunt object, is there a way to fine tune it um, a little bit more? And so we spent, you know, some of the time in the paper, you know, looking at, um, you know, how can we, you know, hone in on and, and identify and really call out those 40% that really should be up right? Because they have those characteristics, but um, maybe not blunt punish those 60%. And obviously nothing's going to be perfect and there's not a, a single way to go about it. 
Um, but ultimately, the two approaches that we looked at is, okay, can we go backwards and look at an additional cycle prior to that um, performance cycle? So is there more of a historical window, essentially, that we could look at? Could Instead of looking at a two-year cycle, could we look at a four-year cycle? Could you look at a six-year cycle? You know, so can you go back? Is there a historical metric that could be created? And then um, the other thing we looked at is, okay, currently they say it's six points and then you move up. Well, it doesn't have to be six points, right? Like, you know, could it be seven points? Uh, could, you know, could it be eight points? What I mean, we kind of landed on maybe, you know, seven points could be the trigger that puts you up. And then we also um, basically we showed statistically on the historical window, there's a significant difference in point accumulation um, between the schools that move down and stay down and the ones that stay up or move up. So the ones that are moving down and staying down, they're scoring less points, statistically less points in the previous two year window than those who are staying up or moving up again. So that justifies just, in our just mind of past historical window look. Yeah, it's not just a two year window. I mean, historically, almost every year you see those teams that move up and stay up, which are the teams that this really is designed for. Almost every year, historically, they're they're scoring more. And so it makes a lot of sense to have that historical trigger rather than just this two year, because then you're really getting at the idea that there's something unique about this specific program that is causing them to have a lot more success. And that could be a number of different things. Um, you know, it could be an amazing coach. Um, it could be uh, in the article we talked about, um, I live, I live about three minutes from the Muncieana complex here in Yorktown and Muncieana volleyball is um, a, a wonderful club volleyball program that's produced national champions over and over. And there's a culture in Delaware County, which is why you've seen three programs in volleyball move up in the tournament success factory. You've seen Yorktown, Westdale, Wapahani. Um, many of the girls who play on those high school teams start really early in Muncieana and, and move up. And so in the sport of volleyball and those schools around this area where I live, it makes a lot of sense. You know, Yorktown was in the state finals last year at 4A, and they're only a 3A high school. But the fact that they're in the state finals as a 3A high school playing up to 4A, it sort of validates the idea that that's where they should be playing, probably because of this inherent advantage that's sitting right in their backyard, which is the Muncieana Club program. And so that's a unique example, uh, or it's an example of something that's unique in a community that might justify a program in high school just being better than other programs because they start earlier. They've got this, this you know, maybe it's a grassroots type uh, mentality, whatever it might be. Um, there are some of those schools that move up and stay up. And many of them are private. And, and the argument could be made that um, private schools have inherited inherent advantages with the way they can select students now there there are restrictions you know private schools uh, cannot recruit athletically and shouldn't be making decisions necessarily athletically um you know but athletes find their way to these schools um whether it's you know they they all play in a club together and they all decide they're going to go whatever it may be maybe it's just you know college prep um and, and what parents want for their kids when they're done i mean there's a variety of, of ways to to look at private schools but you do see the more private schools have success relative to their their representation in the state and so whether it's that whether it's something like a club sport whether it's you know great coaching whether it's you know urban sprawl which you know we've seen that in, in indiana and in indianapolis you've seen that with you know as as you know, 20 years ago, schools like Ben Davis and and Lawrence North and, you know, those those schools that are sort of in the in the circle of 465 um, had more success than they're having now. And now what you're seeing are, are those those Westfields and Carmel's and New Palestine. I mean, those are the those are the schools now that are that are growing and having more success um, because people are being pushed out to the suburbs a little bit. And that's normal. That happens in most cities. So. A variety of reasons as to why um, teams could move up or move down. But the point is, it's not as if this this uh, policy is punishing everyone that's moving up. We're not we're not saying that um, there's certainly 
programs that are justified to move up and probably stay up based on their success. So and you, Jamie, can you talk about the, uh, you know, you've looked at the national, you, you published a paper that was a national landscape uh, analysis of all 50 states and what they're doing for competitive balance. And so there's multipliers, there's um, enrollment reducers, you know, there's separate playoffs, separate championships. Um, but one of the problems that states can get into um, in setting up, you know, something like a separate playoff system is the private schools will sue the association and say, you know, essentially that's not fair. So um, in our data set, I guess we found that 57% of the teams that move up are private schools, um, but it's doing it in a way that then is it's legally more palatable because it's that the policy is treating everyone the same. So from a legal strategy perspective, you are eliminating the law. It's a risk management strategy in some ways, right? It, you're eliminating the uh, potential for a lawsuit by just carving out something totally separate for private schools and saying, well, you can't play with the public schools, right? But then it's also bumping up 50, the 57% of the cases of bump ups are from private schools. So it's from a legal perspective, you could take, look at it from a legal angle and you know see that there's some benefits in terms of how the policy is applied equally across um, the different types of schools hey listeners just a quick time out and we'll get right back to today's episode the sports innovation journal is currently accepting submissions if you're seeking a place to publish your innovative ideas and research on the sport industry then consider submitting your work to the sports innovation journal the Sports Innovation Journal is an open access journal targeting the practitioners seeking answers to the most common questions and problems in the industry. We're always looking for submissions from researchers who are identifying and studying those questions and problems. If you're interested in publishing your work in or serving as a reviewer for the Sports Innovation Journal, please visit the link in the notes or contact Dr. David Pierce, the editor of the SIJ and director of the IUPUI Sports Innovation Institute at dpierce3 at iupui.edu. That's D-P-I-E-R-C-E-3 at iupui.edu. Now let's get back to today's episode of the Sports Innovation Podcast. So right. my, hold yeah. on, Mike, my, my question, to, 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 branching off of this a little bit, is there anything that another state is doing that is on par with what the IHSAA has implemented and in, what Indiana does? Mm -hmm. Or is it, you brought up multipliers, you brought up the separate playoff systems. It doesn't sound to me as if those two things are as, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Far, they don't reach as far. They don't have the depth that it's something like a, a two-year cycle has. Is that, is there anything that anyone's doing other than Indiana that seems to be on par with what the IHSA has done? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Back in 2015, we did the, the this national study of what every state was doing. Now you got to remember, almost every year states are evolving, changing, tweaking policies. And so I I, I just collected data. Um, actually, my my student, my my graduate assistant, just collected data. I'm in the process of looking to see what has changed in the last seven eight years. From when, you're, when we originally did that, I don't have the data done. But to answer your question, yes, um, you know, multipliers, it's it, it, multipliers and separate playoffs. Those two things specifically target private schools. So many states have the issue with private schools where they win disproportionate, you know, uh, amount. So as Dave said, we saw, uh, what was it? 50 something percent. That, 57%. Yeah. 57 that moved up and you only got 15% of schools in Indiana that are private. So that tells you if you've only got 15% of schools that are private, but 57% of the ones that are having the most success are private, something's going on there. And so you see multipliers, which are essentially a number that multiplies enrollment. So um, Illinois has a multiplier. There's a few other states that have a multiplier. And essentially, they just multiply a private school enrollment by a number. And then whatever that comes out to, they slot them in their classifications based on that multiplier. Sometimes it moves them up. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, 
separate playoffs. Uh, Indiana has voted on separate playoffs several times. I don't know the exact number, and every time it gets defeated. And a lot of that has to do with what um, Dr. Pierce was talking about, um, the, the legal ramifications, as well as, you know, you'd have competition for sites, you'd have competition for officials, um, and you don't really have that many private schools in Indiana to to really make a uh, a tournament out of it. And so, so in Indiana, it doesn't really work, but, you know, in states like Texas, where they have their own, um, private school, um, association, it, it can work because you have enough. And so those two things target private schools, but there are other things that, that happen, you know, there are socioeconomic, um, multipliers and they actually go the reverse way that the success factor does. And so you go and you look at a school and the school may be, um, you know, not doing well, and you've got, you know, X number, maybe 70, 80% of kids on free and reduced lunch. And so they use that metric of free and reduced lunch um, to, to maybe reduce it, to reduce it. Yeah. And so, so it's like a reverse multiplier where, you know, if you've got um, for lack of better term, you've, you've got a, a poorer school, less affluent school, and you, you're not going to have the the facilities. You're not going to have the interest. You, you're not going to have the infrastructure that you may have in a very wealthy public or private school. So, so there's a reducer that may take them down a class. Um, you know, those are the big ones. Um, there are some other unique things. Sometimes they'll they'll take a multiplier and a success factor and sort of combine them. But I think to kind of get to your point the trajectory of where competitive balance is going is this, it's this is the success factor for the reasons we just talked about there. It, it doesn't target private schools. It just targets success for whatever, whatever the reason may be, whether it's private school coach, whatever it may be, it's targeting, targeting success, which is why we like the policy. Um, I like the tournament success factor. It's, it's innovative. It's forward thinking. Um, and it really comes down to the idea of if, if you're really that good year in and year out and there's something causing you to be that good, then sure, you should probably play up and play play people that are relatively equal to where, where you're at. So. So, so, Jamie, have you looked at that new data set? Like what um, how many of the is it, how many states are adopting some sort sort of tournament success factor? I know there were two a couple of years ago, but I don't I don't know where it stands now. I have it. It's sitting in an Excel database that yep. I've, I've got to get to. Um, well, that's the next podcast then. Let's go. There, there you go. There you go. Uh, my, my student told me that um, as he was going through the legislation and and the policies are definitely trending in that dir- direction, definitely trending towards success factors or some combination of success factors. Which I think makes this research, you know, it's important for Indiana, but if, if it's, you know, going that direction nationally, people need to know, you know, what the impacts are, you know, from a just a pure here's what happened perspective. So what I'm gathering from this, and, and I had a couple of questions that were answered there. Um, one it sounds to me as if you're saying, even though there's only 15% of high schools in Indiana that are private, you're saying that the 57% of them that moved up, you're still saying that that's a dis- disproportionate number. Is that what yeah, I'm getting at? Okay. Right. So that's a, that's a significant chi-square test or correlation, right? Like that's, so you can run that a couple of different ways and it's going to be pretty significant. <laughs> so yes, you're going to, I mean, it's going to show that, but my question is, is, is the debate warranted that public versus private and fairness, right? Is, is there a debate there to be, to be discussed or is it, is it just something that people are saying it's just not fair because it's not fair or do they, are they justified in saying that it is a problem? Well, I, I think the term is success factor came about because it was a problem in Indiana. But it sounds to me though, Jamie, it sounds to me like it still is. It is, but we, what you got to remember is it's gotten better because over the years with the term of success factor, those private programs that have moved up are, are moving up to the point to where they're, they're competing with schools that are relatively equivalent to them. So are so they staying are they staying out of that data that you found of that 57% of the 15 
are they staying where they end up getting promoted to via the TSF is that, are they the group in your data set that are actually staying going up and staying up and doing it for a set for a longer period of time? Or is it still that where it sounds like it's penalizing the student athlete when they go up, stay up a couple of years, then all of a sudden they, the private school even has a down class and then they drop right that's a great question and actually jeff i believe the answer to that is yes but i don't have any number sitting in front of me that parses that out so and there's still so there's still really the, i'll get back to you on there's that, still that really part. no justification for the argument is what i'm saying for the debate right the public versus private yes the numbers show raw numbers show that they're going up at a disproportionate number however they're they may not be staying we don't know right so that's kind of where that i'm trying to decide is that debate warranted still or is it you know what i'm saying you've done you did four years and now you've done 10 years of research on this are they staying where they end up getting promoted to and is that where they're where they're supposed to be because you know as well as i do a, a 2a school that goes up to 3a goes up and then all of a sudden bam they're back in 2a right or a 1a up to 2a etc you're not going to see schools go from 4a to 5a to 6a and then all of a sudden they're going to hover at 6a right you, you you do actually see that and you see it in a specific sport and that sport is football right football. That, and, and that's the only one that it's that it's happening in and i'm looking at because there's yeah. that only has 6a right but the rest of them what i'm trying to what i, what I was trying to get at was is that debate still viable and it sounds like it is pending. Does that does that make sense? When I, I say it pending, does. I say pending because Dave said I'll get back to you, right? <laughs> well, it, it does. Yeah, I mean, those are the yeah. I mean, essentially, the, yeah, the ones that are staying at the class or moving up, those would be predominantly the private schools. I, I don't have the exact number, but just knowing the data set, I mean, it's only a data set of 117 things. So, like, we know the data set inside now. And, and I think you know the other thing to keep in mind that. Uh, may mute that a little bit too is you know 25 years ago like you know if you lived in whatever Hagerstown it was really hard to go move to a different community and go to school and it you know there's a lot more open borders from that perspective too so I think um, you know public schools again maybe it's not not supposed to be recruiting and it's not supposed to be for athletic purposes but it's a lot easier to be a kid that you know whatever lives in Carmel and now can go to Westfield like it's a lot easier to do that now. So I think that, you know, the days of that being an argument uh, from the public school side are pretty Well, and then you've got the then you've got the lines like HSE and Fishers, you know, the, the 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 one line dividing the two, but yet is there really a line there? It's kind of blurry, you know. Um so, with that said, you guys have talked about a couple of things. Um you talked about historical perspective. You also talked about point number so you've talked about tweaking it and, and Kyle's article talks about, you know, it could be better with tweaks, right? What are your policy shift recommendations, Jamie? What are your, what, what would be the recommendations that you would make that the IHSA maybe could hear from the research like this? Yeah. So in the paper, we make two recommendations and the first is, move the trigger from six to seven. And we we wrote this because the average point value of moving up and staying up was 6.8. So it was much closer to seven. It also ensures that you win a state title. Now, to some people that may not be as important, um, but to some it is. Because originally the TSF was created um, from football. And we talked a little bit ago about football and, and more teams in football have moved up than any other sport. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's a ton of private schools that have moved up in football and, and stay up the cathedrals and the chitards and, you know, really great schools, really great programs. Um, and they're probably at the point where they're, they're at where they should be. Um, so the first would be move it to seven. If you do that, you're you're going to get um, a state champion, and you're probably going to get those schools that are a little bit more historically successful. At least that's what our data tells us. The second is use a historical trigger. 
Now we have statistical evidence that say, you know, six years, eight years, um, how a team does that far back does predict how they would do after they move up. And so you got to start thinking practically, how would you do that? Because if you start going too far back, then you, you know, you, coaches change and schools change and facilities change, a lot of things change. And so, you know, where's the sweet spot of, of a historical um, trigger? I think it's six years. I think you need to move beyond four years because what happens if you've got an amazing athlete that comes in, even their freshman year, I mean, let's say you got a, you know, a seven foot basketball player that comes in and, you know, to one, a high school and they play for four years and they win four state titles and, you know, it could happen. It's, it's unlikely, but it could happen. And so I think you need to move beyond four years. So for me, I would say six years. Um, but practically speaking, I don't think you could go beyond six years. Um, it may be more practical to do a four or six year window. So those are really the two things. Six year window sounds like the college model with APR and, and things like that. That six year it sounds like the, yeah. the model and, to go off of. And when you get into the weeds of this, it gets real complicated real quick. Uh I mean Jamie and I have run through different what if scenarios. We don't need to do that here on this podcast, but it gets it gets it gets challenging. Um, but so like what for example, like one of the there may need to be a carve out though for just straight up back to back state championships, right? So it could be in the two year window. We're gonna look at the four year window or six year window, but if it's literally two state championships, maybe that's you know, athletic directors and the people that vote on these things, they may perceive that as you know, too much success to hold off on. So there's a whole like rank, there's an intersect there. These things work together, right? The window and the new point total could be worked together in tandem to, to again, overall goal, be fair and just make it a little more surgical to make sure we're really capturing in the net, the ones that um, have been historically successful and will continue to be And our data shows that you can draw that connection between past success and future success. Right. Because what you don't want to have happen is is the criticism that that these kids these kids for two years are being punished for their predecessor success. And if you have these two different triggers, one where it's a seven point instead of six, now you're eliminating you know a lot of those those teams that are being punished for success. And then you go to a second trigger, which is okay. Let's say six years prior, how much success do they have? When you combine those two things, you're really going to take out most of the schools that are being punished for success. The ones that shouldn't be moved up, the ones that are the flash in the pan, the one or two great, you know, classes of athletes. Those are the ones you're going to eliminate when you do those two things. It's yeah. not going to get them all. It's not going to get them all. It's not going to be perfect, but it will be a better, we believe it would be a better policy if those things were implemented. And ultimately the problem you get into and in all of this stuff at the end of the day is the folks that are voting you know on this a lot of times have the you know the it's their lens of their school and what's going to advantage or disadvantage their school and so that's where we're hopeful that just some agnostic agnostic data distribution and analysis can at least help inform that decision making and take it out of the you know very myopic bucket of me and my school type voting so kind of wrapping wrapping up in the star article you, you and you've done it here a bunch of times you've mentioned that this is an innovative policy what makes this particular policy not we've you've brought up several you brought up multipliers you've brought up tsf you've brought up you know other things what about this particular policy makes it innovative in interscholastic sports um it's the idea that you're not targeting anything other than the athletic performance. You're not, you're not multiplying because they're a private school. You're not looking at free and reduced lunches. You're not doing separate playoffs because of the way that the school, you're literally talking about the competitive balance of the athletic team, not even the school, the team itself. And so it really kind of drills down to that idea of should that team play with other schools that are in similar enrollments than them, or is there something else that is causing them to be more successful than they, um, I don't know if should be is the correct term, but are likely to be in that classification. And that's, that's just, that's innovative. It, it, it's just something that historically we've never seen. 
You know, even when Indiana way back had, you know, one class in basketball, um, you, you know, the idea that you had to go to class sports was something that was fought. It was fought really hard against, you know, it was hard to get to that. And now, um, you know, I, I, some of the students in my classes will have this conversation, you know, we'll have this conversation of, uh, it's, it's really a dichotomy. This is maybe going down a rabbit hole, but I'll go back and I'll talk to, to guys, my age, you know, um, guys in their, in their late forties and, and even older than that. And, and there's, there's certainly a segment of this population in Indiana. And I'm sure you, you've both talked to people that want to go back to single class basketball, you know, and who, who is, who are those people? Well, it's the people who grew up with it. It's the people that, you know, the older people in the state that have the nostalgia that, that really love the idea that anybody could come in and there could be a myelin. Well, obviously at some point we realized through the evolution of sport, but that's just unlikely. You're not going to have another myelin the way that sports have evolved and the number of schools and the way we train ath athletes and so on and so forth. There really needs to be some, some opportunity there for classifications. Now, every state has gone to classification systems. Actually, Kentucky may still do basketball single class. I don't know if they moved or not. As of like five years ago, they were still single class. But anyway, and so the idea here is that you have these classification in sports and we're never going back. So I talk to my older friends that want to go back, but I go into my classroom and I talk to 21 year old students and they all tell me, I bring it up. I'm like, should we go back to class basketball? And hundred percent, no way. No, you can't do that because they understand that the classifications do something. They make it competitively balanced, relatively competitively balanced. I mean, there's, you're never going to be perfect. And so what this does then is it takes that concept of being uh, balanced competitively that having people in a peer group that is relatively even to you, it takes that concept and it makes it even better. So I think it works. And it seems to be the only policy that is relying on success on the field as opposed to something else, socioeconomic status or, or yep. enrollment bumpers or whatever it sounds like it's the one that says you win, you're in, you don't, you're, you're not sort of thing. So I like, I never really thought of that as being innovative and the way you guys have framed it, that is definitely innovative. I mean, that is definitely a new way of looking at it. I grew up in a class system in New York, New York state, but we could never have competed with some of the city schools in New York city. There was no way. I mean, <laughs> No, no. Our basketball team was 10 guys and that was one fifth of the school, you know. Um, but the, the whole thought on it is, is that, that that innovation in of itself is, I like the, the fact, the way that you framed that. Um, so with that said, I'm going to conclude things, but I want to I wanna do one thing before we go. So when it comes down to it, you both are professors in the sport industry whether it be administration, management, however we want to frame it. Is there something that you want to tell people about our industry? Not off, not on this topic, right? But something about our industry. What do you want to tell people, right? About sport. I don't know. I'll start with you, Jamie. I know this is off the cuff, but I want to ask. It, it is off the cuff, but I appreciate that um, because I think it's a question we need to be able to answer as as sport professionals and academics and, and people you know, who teach students to go work in the sport environment. I, I would say um, one of the conversations I have with my students frequently is, um, and a lot of times it's, you know, before or after class, it's sort of anecdotal and, you know, a student will come up to me and they may say, you know, my parents are a little bit concerned that um, I'm majoring in sport administration or sport management rather than business or, you know, rather than whatever, pick your major, you know, what do I tell them or, or how do I validate this? You know, that's kind of the, the synopsis of the conversation. And so when I talk to them, and, and this is what I would want people to know is that the sport industry is enormous. The sport industry is bigger than, than so many parts of other entertainment industries, the movie industry. I mean, it is, it is an enormous industry with so much opportunity that specialization and knowledge in this area is, is critical. It's a valid area of study, um, both economically, um, and functionally, 
um, entertainment, education, all of it. It, it, It's, it's worthwhile. So I would want to tell people um, that first and foremost, that it's, it's a a thriving industry. Um, And it's also recession proof. You look at certain industries that have gone through recessions. I mean, sport continues to grow through a recession. So um, that's the first thing I would say is that um, as an industry that's sort of struggling to gain and has struggled over the past couple decades to gain acceptance into some of the mainstream um, academic professions, just know that it is. It very much is. And, and this information, and when you think about the number, and th- specifically, you think about the number of uh, students in high school playing high school athletics. I mean, it is I don't remember the number now, but it's it's an astronaut. If you go to NFH, NFHS website, you can. It's an astronomical number. Think about how important it is to to do it right, to have the experience of all these kids, um, you, you know, be positive. So those are the things. If I had to sum it up off the cuff, Dave, how about you? Well, there's a lot of different directions we could go, aren't there? Um... Uh, I guess I would lean towards, uh, you know, just in, you know, speaking to other sport management uh, faculty members out there uh, doing research. I mean, I think there's a, this is a really good example of how to do applied research um, that makes a difference, can inform policy decisions in the real world, but also be publishable and be rigorous and methodological and still be cited and check all of your boxes for promotion and tenure. So you don't have to you don't have to sacrifice doing research that matters, um, you know, just to play the university academic P&T game. So, or promotion and tenure game. So I guess that, you know, a lot of different directions we could go on that, but we'll, we'll go there. Anything that's applied is always good, right? Yeah. Well, you, well usually, right. And I don't yeah. necessarily always, but well, I want to say thank you to Dr. Johnson and Dr. Pierce for joining me today for the Sports Innovation Podcast. Thanks for discussing your research and providing a little bit of insight into who you are and what, you, what you're thinking about. Um, so with that said, thanks, guys. And you could check out Dr. Johnson and Dr. Pierce's piece in the Sports Innovation Journal by clicking on the link below and check out all that's happening with Sport Management and the Sports Innovation Institute at IUPUI with the SII at SII.IUPUI.edu. Thank you, gentlemen, and you guys have a great rest of your day. You've been listening to the Sports Innovation Podcast presented by the IUPUI Sports Innovation Institute. You can check out the research conducted by the SII, get more information on the Sports Innovation Journal, and check out the research conducted by some of our students and much, much more by going to our website at SII.IUPUI.edu. Subscribe for the latest episodes and thank you for listening to the Sports Innovation Podcast.